Heavenly Father, tonight is a an important night in our uh, our time together this weekend. As we begin to discover, maybe for the first time for some and others, maybe in a newer and deeper way, the magnificence and the glory that is our salvation at the cross. And so, Father, I pray that as we go through this uh, next few hours together, that we'd be very much aware that you're the teacher and this is your truth and that we have no hope of understanding it apart from you. But I look forward to what you're going to do, Father, in our hearts. And so we give you permission to do whatever you want this night. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So last night we looked at two real main themes. One was the greatest purpose that God has for you and I as, as His children. And what was that great purpose that we discovered? That Jesus wants to live His life through us. Yeah, that Jesus Himself wants to live through us. That it would uh, be Him living alive through us rather than us trying to live out of our strength for Him. That's ultimately what He's, what he's after. Uh, but what gets in the way of that? That was the, the next thing that we spent uh, the evening talking about. What gets in the way of all that? We don't want to talk about it anymore. We don't want to talk about it anymore. <laughs> Thoroughly depressed. Come on. What is it? No. The flesh. The flesh. It just sounds ugly to, sa- to say, doesn't it? Flesh. But that's not what the Bible calls it. The Bible calls it flesh. And, and it's not human nature, as we'll see why that's a really poor definition for it tonight. But uh, flesh is what gets in the way of it. And the definition we came up with for the flesh is body and soul doing the best that I can, independent of God, trying to meet my needs or protect myself. So it's just basically me trying to live life apart from God. That's the flesh. It may look good, it may not look so good. And so last night we spent lots of time uh, diagramming and trying to understand what your flesh looks like. Did anyone do the the, uh, the checklist? Anyone go through the, the list? And Do you want to come up forward and we'll share your list? And, no, we won't do that. Don't worry. That'll teach you for doing the homework, won't it? Uh, no, I wouldn't do that to you. That's not for us, it's for you. It's for you to begin to see what your flesh looks like. And tonight what we want to then discover is what's God's answer for the flesh. So if you want to turn to page, I think it's 16 of your syllabus, you'll see the top of it, the page, that heading is the biblical makeup or biblical picture of man. And what we want to to understand uh, in terms of the God's answer, we need to have a better understanding of what is man comprised of? What is he all about? So in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, it says, Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Christ Jesus. So here is Paul, his exhortation, his desire, uh, that we would be entirely made sanctified. And then he goes to make his point, he lists the different parts of man, the spirit, soul, and body. So you can see here that man is comprised of how many parts? Three parts. Three different parts. Uh, If that's the case, we should be able to see it in the Genesis account when man was first created. So in Genesis 2 and verse 7, it says, Then the Lord God formed man from the dust from the ground. Uh, What part of man is that referring to? To the body. If you've ever wondered why your house is so dusty, you don't have to look past your own nose. 
our skin, it falls off, it flakes off, and it turns to dust. And, you know, in Scripture it says, from dust you came, to dust you will return. So the physical body was just the dust from the ground. Then it says, and God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Breath being spirit, or the spirit of life. This phrase later on is translated, the spirit of the breath of life. So God breathed into man a spirit, and the result was man became a living being. Or if you use the King James Bible, it would say man became a living soul. Because the word translated being is literally the word for soul. And so we could see that God formed the body, breathed in him a spirit, and as a result, his soul had life. So we can see, even in the Genesis account, these three unique parts. Now there are some who would say that man is really only comprised of two parts. That man is a spirit slash soul and a body. That spirit soul is really just an interchangeable word, kind of like car and automobile. And there's no real difference between the two. Well, if that were the case, then Paul has a bit of a stuttering problem in 1 Thessalonians 5.23 because he said your spirit and your spirit and body, if that were the case. But there's another verse in Hebrews 4 where the writer says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit. Now, if something's the same thing, can you divide it? No. But there is a division. There is a distinction between soul and spirit. Now, I would you know, agree that it's not easy to understand the, distinct, the distinction between the two. That on your diagram, you have nice three concentric circles to make the case. And it's not that simple in reality. But what we're going to attempt to do the, this evening is to take a look at some of the functions of the spirit and the soul. And that will give us some insight, I think, as to different parts of it. So on page 16, you have your three concentric circles, and we're going to start with the spirit. And we're going to start with the spirit because the spirit really is the most important part of man. It's the single most important part of who we are. You see, when God surveys planet Earth, He sees really two kinds of people. What are those two kinds of people? Is it black, white, male, female, Jew, Gentile, slave, free? How does He see the world when he sees when he looks at the world yeah lost or saved those that are in christ those that are not those that are believers those that are not and which group you fall into is going to be dependent upon your spiritual condition do you have a christ spirit or do you have an adam spirit so our spirit really begins to define who we are it's you know we can think of it as think defining our core identity this really is where our nature lies, in the spirit. However, we tend to use the word nature, I think, rather loosey-goosey and apply it to other things. But the reality is your life is in your spirit. It's really who you are. Which starts to make a little bit more sense when you think about the creation account. You see, when God made man, He, he said, let us make man in our own image. So when God made man... What kind of a being did he make man? If God's a spirit, what kind of being must man have been made? He also had to be a spirit. So which of these two statements becomes more true? Are you and I, are we human beings having spiritual experiences? Or are we spiritual beings having human experiences? Which of them is more true? The second. We're actually spiritual beings that have human experiences. But when was the last time you thought of yourself in those, in those terms? We don't tend to think of ourselves that way. 
we tend to think of ourselves as human beings that every so often has a spiritual encounter with God. Maybe at church on Sunday or a prayer meeting on Wednesday or, or when you're out with a friend on Thursday. But for the rest of the time, it's just me. I'm just a human being. That's just what's going on. But the reality is you and I are spiritual beings facing human circumstances. And if we could begin to understand that, then that opens up a whole nother realm of resources to deal with the circumstances that we're facing each and every day. So our spirit determines our core identity. It determines our nature. It's where our life is. This is who you are in a nutshell as a spiritual being. Now, it's through the spirit that we're going to be able to relate to God. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. That's what it says in John 4, 24 and Romans 8, 16. So it's through the spirit that we have a God consciousness or that we can relate to God. You see, can you have a deep, personal, intimate relationship with a plant? No, people have tried, but it doesn't work. And so for God, being a spirit, wanting that deep, personal, intimate relationship with you and I, he had to create us with a spirit in order to relate to us on that level. And so it's through our spirit that we have the opportunity to relate to God. Well, what about the soul then? How does the soul distinguish itself from the spirit? Well, the soul is really made up of three parts. It's got the mind, the emotions, and the will. And it might be helpful to think of the mind as your thinker. So when you're driving a car, we have some information about driving cars, some facts. So red light means? Go. I don't want to be on the road with you. Someone else. And take away his license. Red light means? Stop. Green light means? Yellow light means speed up, right? That's, that's the one we all know. Now, some of that information may be good, some of it's not so good, but that's the information that is stored in our mind. It's where we process our facts. 2 plus 2 is 4, 3 plus 3 is 6, and so forth. We have all this information in our mind. Some of it may be good, some of it may not be so good. Our emotions, that's our feeler. And the thing about feelings is there's nothing wrong with them. They were just never designed to tell us what is truth. For example, Daniel, what's your favorite color? Purple. Why? Yeah, there's no real answer. It's just because. I mean, we all know the real answer is blue, but but you know, purple's okay too. So, but there's no there's no reason to it because it's not based on anything factual. It's just it feels good. So the thing about feelings is they were never designed to dictate what's truth to us. The problem is, though, for many people, they let their feelings dictate what's truth. If I don't feel it, then it's not true. If I do feel it, then it's true. But feelings, they switch. They go up and down so quickly. For example, suppose my wife, she comes down the stairs wearing this beautiful blue dress, because blue is the right color. And I, and I say to her, wow, honey, that's a beautiful dress. How do you think she's feeling at that moment? She's feeling really pretty good, real special. The very next words in my mouth, though, are, too bad it doesn't fit you. Now, how's she feeling? I'm suddenly a heel. (laughs) I got a shoe coming at my head, so I'm feeling a bit sore. But uh, she's not feeling so good anymore. And and it goes up and down just like that. It, It can change. It can be very fleeting, the thing with emotions. 
to further complicate things with emotions is people's feelers sometimes get stuck. So what happens is we go through life, if you imagine your feeler on a scale of 0 to 10, where 0 is calm, cool, and collected, and 10 is an anxious, nervous mess, we go through life, and whenever something happens, our, our feeler goes up, and then it's supposed to come back down. That's just natural, because your feelings are just saying something's happening. But for some people growing up, they faced a lot of pain and a lot of rejection, and so their feeler just kept going up and never had the time to come back down. And so now they go up and goes up and goes up, and eventually it gets kind of stuck at 7, so that it never goes below 7. So instead of operating on a full 10-point scale, now the person's only operating on a 3-point scale. So a little thing comes, which isn't a really big deal, just raises the feeler up 2 or 3 points, but when you're starting at a 7, suddenly you're at a 9 or 10. And now you, got, you explode. And so a lot of people get into trouble when their feeler is that high and they just live out of their emotions, live out of their feelings. Then there's some on the other end who didn't want it, couldn't handle it and didn't know how to deal with it. And so they just pegged their feeler at a 3 and it hasn't moved since 1922. It's just stuck. It's not going anywhere. And so, you know, both aren't good, but that's just the reality of what's happening in our lives today for some people. Well, that brings us to the will, and the will's our chooser. It's like a light switch. A light switch is either on or off. There's no one between. Even the dimmer switch, for those that wanted to be smart, even that is on or off. And so with the will, you either choose or you choose not to. No in between. So if I decide not to make a choice, what have I done? I still made a choice. And what happens often is our mind and our emotions go to influence the will. Now that's fine if you've got good thinking and your emotions are clear, but if your emotions are screaming a 10 and you've got some stinking thinking in your mind, then it's going to be really hard to make some proper choices. Now another word that we might use to describe our soul is our personality. And this personality, this soul, is really how you and I get to know one another. So it's through the soul that we can relate to one another. We can relate to others. So when you get to meet somebody, you get to know them based on their mind, what they're thinking about things, maybe what they're feeling about things, some of the past decisions they made. And you get to know people through that soul. But the soul is not really who you are. It's not the core of who you are. It's your personality. But if your personality changes, it doesn't change you. Because who you are as a spirit. Now, do you see why it's so important to understand these, these two parts? That if you don't see that the, you have a soul and a spirit, you will neglect one and focus in on the other. And since we tend to know a little bit more about the soul than we do the spirit, guess which one we neglect? We neglect the spirit, the single most important part of who you are. That doesn't make the soul unimportant, it's just not as important as the spirit. Well, let's move on then to the body. And the body is composed of anything physical, be it your arms, your legs, your lungs, uh, even your brain. Your brain is different than your mind. Uh, your brain is sort of like the hardware of a computer, you know, the floppy drive, the disk drive, the, the memory and so forth, whereas the mind is like the software on it. And for some people that, you know, they run in on Windows 3.0 and it's still crashing every other day. And, you know, that's why they have so many issues. So this is kind of the software that's running on the hardware 
of the brain. But there is a distinction between the two. It might be helpful to think of your body as your earth suit, as one person likes to call it. Because if I was this guy, an astronaut, and I go into outer space, I need a spacesuit to allow me to survive and operate in outer space. It has a nice um, oxygen tank so I can breathe, a pressurized suit so the air doesn't escape. It's got a nice visor so I can be protected from the sun glaring at me and it's temperature controlled so I can withstand the extreme temperatures and might even have a little bit of a jet pack so I can move around. It's allowing me to live and operate in outer space. In the same way, my earth suit, my body, allows me to relate to the world around me. So it's just my earth suit. But here's the thing. Your body is not who you are. It's just the dwelling you're in. Who you are is defined by the spirit. But when you look at our society and our culture as a whole, what is the order of importance that we begin to to list these three parts? Body. Soul, and then if you think, maybe the spirit, but maybe even not. Maybe you completely dismiss the spirit. I mean, think about how much money is spent on the physical appearance of the body each and every year. Between, you know, you got to have the right clothes because you can't have last season's clothes. So you've got to have new clothes. And then you have the right accessories with that. And then you have to have the right hairstyle and the right haircut and the right hair color. And then you have the right nails and the right color of the nails and the right shape of the nails. And, and then you have, you know, exercise and diet. And if that doesn't work, there's always surgery. And, and so much money, trillions of dollars every year is spent just on trying to get the body the right size and shape and look. And the hope is, if I look good, will you love me? If I look right, will you accept me? But they're discovering that, you know, surgeons who do all this plastic surgery to change the body is never enough. Because it's not really changing who they are. And this is the single most important part. Well, let's kind of fill in the blanks at the bottom of your page there on page 16 then. So man is essentially a spirit who has a and lives in a body. So we are a spirit who has a soul and lives in a body. Now let's think just for one minute about the the garden where God made man. Think about day one. At the end of day one, God surveyed creation. And then what did He say at the end of day one? It's good. It's good. Day two, formed some more stuff and looked at creation. He says it's Good. Still good. Day three, day four, day five, he says it's it's good. Day six, at the end of it, he says it's very good. So what changed in creation between day five and day six to go from good to very good? Or to put it another way, what was missing at the end of day five that was now present in day six and don't say man or woman? Sorry? A piece of God or God Himself. Because God wasn't in the rocks. He wasn't in the fish. He wasn't in the birds. He wasn't in the trees. He wasn't in the ground. He wasn't in the sky. He wasn't in the sun. He wasn't in the stars. He wasn't in creation. And so it was good, but it was missing God. But when God formed man and He breathed life into man, His life, and now Adam is in the image of God, 
And God surveys creation and He sees man. He sees Adam. And who does He see? Himself. And so He says it's very good. Because He's a good judge of character. And so now creation is very good. And you see, what man became in that moment now was the ambassador. So if anyone in creation ever wondered what God was like, who do they need to look to? To man. So man was created to be that very expression of God on earth. So that creation could look to God, or to look to Adam, and know who God was, what He was like, His character. Because Adam was in that very creation, that very image of God. That doesn't make Him God. He didn't have the the supreme power of God. But in the, the fact that He was loved, that He was accepted, that He was significant of worth, that's who He was created as. So that was God's desire for you and I to be ambassadors, to be the expression of God here on earth. But we know the story from, you know, maybe your Sunday school classes or just reading in through the through the Bible that things didn't turn out so well. So although that in, in Genesis 5.1 it says that Adam was created in the likeness of God, that man sinned. And we looked at that last night and God said the day you eat of this tree, what would happen? you would surely die. Now we have to understand something about death. Death here wasn't the annihilation. It wasn't that man's spirit turned into a piece of driftwood or or it disintegrated and it ceased to exist. Instead, the death that took place was really a separation. See, an example of that would be, I have a a very godly grandmother. She passed away now about 25 years ago, I guess. And uh, she was a very godly, grand, uh, very godly woman. And so where would she be today? In heaven. So why, if she's in heaven with Jesus, would I say she's dead? You could argue she's more alive than I am. But she's dead to me because I can't connect with her. I can't talk with her. There's a separation between her and I. And that's what death is. It's a separation. It's the absence of that life. And so when Adam ate from that tree, his spirit died in the sense that it was now separated from God and without the life of God, but his spirit was now very much alive unto sin. It was very much controlled by sin. And so really you might think of man's spirit as a bit of a, you know, man himself essentially as the unbeliever. He's a bit of a walking zombie. He's He's the living dead. He's in the spirit. He's separated from God. And so his spirit doesn't have the life of God. And that's how Adam was when he left the garden. And that's the way that Eve was when she left the garden. And it says in verse 3 that when Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness according to his own image. Meaning if Adam was spiritually dead and Seth was born, what kind of condition was Seth in when he showed up on planet earth? He was spiritually dead. And in Seth's kids and all the other kids, all the way down to you and I, how did we show up on planet Earth? Spiritually alive or spiritually dead? We show up spiritually dead as a result of the fall. So on page 17 there of your, di- of your syllabus, we have what we call the pre-salvation man or the unbeliever. This is how the unbelievers are today, but also how you and I were before we knew Christ. And so you can see in our diagram here that God, the source of life, is where? 
outside of man. He's outside of man. And in fact, in Isaiah 59 and 2, it says that your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. So our sins have created a barrier between us and God. Now, it's not that God is deaf in one ear and you know His left eye doesn't see as well as the right anymore and so that's why He's got a bit of a blind spot. It's What it's referring to is that there's no relationship There's no intimacy. There's no connection between these two as a result of the separation from man's sins. But more than that, man is without life. In 1 John 5.12, he who has a son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. Notice, it's very particular, it's very specific. It's talking about the life. Not a life, but the life. And so he who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. Meaning that this person's spirit is without the life of God. It's dead to God, very much alive to sin, however. It's dominated by sin now. And this is what the Bible refers to as our old man. It's the old man because there's going to see we'll have a new man, but this is the, the, the unregenerate spirit of the unbeliever. Isn't this exciting? Well, then it says in Isaiah 53 and verse 6 that we all, like sheep, have now gone astray. Each of us has gone our own way. And so we see here the flesh now making up the combination of soul and body. And this is why I don't think human nature is a very good definition of the flesh. Because where does our nature lie? Here. This is our nature. And for the unbeliever... He is by nature a child of wrath. And so his nature isn't very good. But your nature is not the flesh. The flesh is just your way of coping. And as we go on through our conference, you'll see that that starts to get fairly confusing if you think of this as your nature. And that's simply not what it is. It's just your ways of coping, your ways of living independent of God. And for the unbeliever, he had no choice. Because he was independent of God. He was separated from God. Now, in Ephesians 2, 1 and 3, we see the best biblical definition of the flesh. And it says in Ephesians 2 and verse 1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So it's referring to the spirit in particular was dead, but death was reigning over all of man. But in particular, his spirit was dead in which you formerly walked according to the the course of this world. And among them, we all too formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh. We all used to live this way, living after our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh, the body, and of the mind or the soul, and were by nature in our spirit children of wrath. So here we can see the best biblical definition is this combination of body and soul, and by nature in our spirit we are children of wrath. Fun stuff, right? So looking at this diagram, how many problems does man have and don't say lots? There are two. There are two basic problems with man. What are they? One problem is his sins. That's a problem. But there's another problem. He's dead. He's got no life. 
Suppose there was a, a, a man, he died of cancer, and the doctor comes out to tell the family the bad news, and, and so the doctor comes and says to the family, the, the wife and the brother and the sons and the daughters, says, I'm afraid your, your husband, he's died of cancer, but after he died, I went in and I took all the cancer out. He's now cancer-free. And I did that free. I didn't charge or bill you guys. I just thought maybe you'd want to take me out for dinner to celebrate that you know your husband's now cancer-free. Well, would that be a good reason to celebrate that this dead man is cancer-free? No. This will be no for tonight. So, right? It's not a big reason to celebrate. There's no reason to celebrate because why? What's he missing? Life. He's missing life. And you see, the, the main issue with you and I, with the gospel, is that we are lacking life. So at the bottom of that page, man's basic problem at birth is that he is separated from God and therefore without life. That's what man is missing. Look what Jesus says in John 5, verses 24 to 25. He begins with truly, truly. We talked about that last night. If Jesus is saying, can I be honest with you? It's not being, you know, we'll trust this, but everything else is suspect. He's making an emphasis. He's making a point. Truly, truly, I say unto you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and has not come into judgment, but has passed out of death and is now forgiven. Is that what it says? No. No. As he will have life. You see, what we've done is we've reduced salvation to getting your sins forgiven and going to heaven one day. And we've missed the point. Do you realize that Jesus never once in the Gospel says, I have come to forgive your sins? Not once did He say that. He did it. It was vitally, absolutely, and crucial and important that He do. But not once did He say, I have come to do that. Instead, He said, I have come that you might have life. Very next verse. I find this amazing. Truly, truly. Have you ever had to repeat yourself to your kids? Why do you repeat yourself to your kids? Because it's important. So why do you repeat yourself? So why do you repeat yourself? <laughs> okay, you're getting it. So here He says, truly, truly. Again, Making a point. I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. It's about life. That's what we were missing. And that is what God has come to give us. That's what He's desiring to give us. Give us life. So let's turn to page 18 then and we'll go ahead and get this guy saved. So in Ephesians 1 and verse 7, it says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. What event in human history are we referring to? The cross of Christ, where He died. His blood was shed to take care of how many of your sins? All of them. Isn't that incredible? He didn't just take care of all your past sins, but all your... Future sins. Because when He died, how many of your sins were future? All of them. Look what it says in First Peter. For Christ died for sins once for all. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. So you and I could be restored, reunited to God. That we have life in Him. That's what was happening. So forgiveness was necessary. It was crucial. 
But there's more to it. There's much more to it. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says the old is gone, the new has come. And so now we are this new man. But remember, what we needed above all else was what? Was life. And so watch what God does. In Romans 5, For if while we are enemies we are reconciled to God through the death of His Son, referring to the blood that was shed by Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, is anything greater than the death of Jesus? I mean, He forgave all my sins and all your sins. And I don't know about you, but I have a lot of sins that He dealt with. So, can we measure the power in the death of Jesus? It's off the charts. It's incredible. Is there anything greater than that? What's the next two words? Much more. There's something that is not just a little bit more. There is something that is much more greater than the death. Well, what could be possibly greater than the death of Jesus? Having now been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. For 20 years as a Christian, I thought I was saved by His death. And then I discovered this verse and saw that I'm saved by His life. You see, as a little kid, I prayed that sinner's prayer hundreds of times. You know the sinner's prayer, right? Lord, forgive my sins and come live in me. And I prayed that, that prayer as a young little boy. I, I can't remember how many times I prayed it. Because I wasn't sure, maybe I didn't pray the right prayer. Or maybe God didn't get the message. Or maybe He was busy and didn't hear it. Or maybe He didn't think I meant it. Or I, I just kept praying it hundreds of times to make sure that, that I was saved. And I understood why I was praying for the forgiveness of sins, because I had a younger sister. So I understood why I needed to be forgiven. But why I was asking him to come live in me, it, it didn't make sense. I had no idea. I just prayed it because that's what I was taught to pray. And so for 20 years, it was just, I don't know why you're here. My, my oldest, when she was four, she said to me one day at the dinner table, I know why Jesus lives in me. And I said, really, why? To watch the food go down. And, I, and it's funny, but after 20 years as a Christian, you know what? I couldn't have given a better answer. That sounds as good as anything I could come up with. But I've discovered now the reason why He came to live in us. And it's radical, so you have to pay attention. But, but here it is. Jesus came to live in us. To live in us. It's radical, isn't it? But that's the reality of it. He came to actually live. To actually be alive. He's not done. He's up to, up to all kinds of stuff and He wants to do it through you and I. In fact, He's come to live the Christian life because He's the only one that can. How many people have tried to live the Christian life? Have you discovered something about it? I want you to know this. The Christian life is not difficult for you and I to live. It's just simply impossible. We can't do it. For example, Bill, suppose you, you wrote a book about yourself. And I got a hold of this book. And I read this book and I thought, this is great. This Bill character is wonderful. In fact, I want to live like Bill. 
and I study the book, I memorize portions of the book, I, uh, I even begin to teach other people about how to live the Lake You. In fact, I call it the Billion Life. And I, you know, have artwork with your, your part passages on it. I have, I have a little, you know, WWBD and, and I just think about what Bill would do and, and I, I dedicate myself. I go all over the world preaching how to live the Billion Life. Who do you think could live your life better, me or you? Did I tell you about the seminaries? We have one opening up in Bangladesh next year. It's going to be great, incredible. Thousands of people are going to come and I'll be teaching them. And you think you can do a better job? Why? It's your life. You're the only one that can. At the very best, I could come second place. And then we have Christians now trying to live the Christian life. Trying to live like Jesus. Who's Jesus, by the way? God. If I asked you to live like an angel, angels are able to travel back and forth between heaven and earth in a split second. They are perfect messengers of God, uh, wield flaming swords, do battle with Satan, and apparently they sing with a horn. Um, so they do all this stuff. And I want you to live like an angel for one year. Can anyone do it? Okay, one month. Okay, one, one week and I won't go lower. Okay, I lied. One day. But that's it. Okay, I lied again. For one hour. For five minutes. Can anyone live like an angel? For one second, could you live like an angel? No. Why not? It's kind of ridiculous for me to ask you to live like an angel, isn't it? Well, who's got a higher life than an angel? And if you can't live like an angel, what makes you think you can live like God Himself? And yet that's what we're told time and time again. Do this and you'll be like God. Again, where have we heard that before? A few thousand years ago in the garden where Satan told that lie and we've been falling for it hook, line, and sinker ever since. Trying to be Jesus when He never asked you to be that. Instead, He wants to be Jesus in you and He wants to save you from everything this world throws at you. So He literally came and put His life within us so He could live the Christian life through you. So He could, could live through you. He could love your enemy like you couldn't. This is great news for you husbands out there. Think about the verse, Ephesians 5.25. The great command to husbands. What is it? Husbands, love your wives. But not just any kind of love. How? So what chance do you have at loving your wife as Christ loved the church? No chance. The good news is, Jesus came and He put His life in you so He can love your wife in a way that you can't. The question is, will we trust Him? Will we let Him? But that's what He's wanting to do. So His life is in us now to live the Christian life. Let's look at the Amplified Version of Romans 5.10. So I'll say it a little bit louder. Rough crowd tonight. So, for if while we are enemies, we are reconciled to God by the death of His Son, it's much more certain, now that we're reconciled, we shall be saved, daily delivered from sin's domain through His resurrection life. Every day, you and I face 
sin, we face temptation, we face the trials and tribulation of this world, and Jesus says, I have come to save you through that. To daily deliver you from everything this world can throw at you. With my life, with my strength, with my peace, with my joy, that's what I've come to do. And so this principle of life is so important. It's so crucial. Let's look at 1 Thessalonians 5.10. Jesus died for us so that whether we're alive or dead physically, basically for all time, we might live together with Him and share His life, the Amplified Bible says. That we would co-survive and live out of His resources. That it wouldn't rely upon my peace, but His. That it wouldn't rely upon my strength, but His. I wouldn't rely upon my joy, but His. Because His is a limitless well. And He never runs out. Is this making sense? So let's fill in the blanks at the bottom of that page. So God gave His life for us. He died on the cross in order to give His life to us in order that He might live His life in us or through us. Not so much that I would live for Him but that He would live through me. That's His desire. To be life to you and I. To provide for you and I. Amen? Alright, let's take a look at somebody then who never really understood this principle of Christ living in them. They're saved, they're a Christian, but all they understood was their forgiveness of sins. And so, this C in their spirit represents who? Christ in them. Christ in their spirit. And you see, there's really there's two extremes. There's two uh, opposites of people in this world. There are those who have been rejected and those who have been rejected a lot. And so what we have here that we're going to look at first is the one that who, that's been rejected a lot. This is the negatively programmed person. So they've grown up and they've faced all sorts of traumas, all sorts of rejections, all sorts of problems. And they face that maybe from their family. Maybe their mom and dad had issues and they passed those issues on to them. Um, maybe they lost a, a family member. Maybe mom died at a young age or dad died or there was a divorce or, or something happened. So, and then, then the circumstances. Maybe they were very poor and they struggled to get through life, never knowing when the next meal was going to come. And so they had tremendous stress upon them. Or maybe there were just other people that was happening in their life. Maybe they were abused. Maybe they were bullied at school. Maybe they, they didn't do so well at school. All sorts of different factors go into all this. And the result being is they begin to form feelings like we have listed here. Feeling anxious, feeling worthless, feeling incompetent or insignificant and hopeless and helpless and unloved. And you might look at this list and identify, you know what, I feel maybe some, maybe all of this fairly often. And what happens is these feelings begin to take hold and the messages that we're receiving from people along with these feelings, we begin to now believe them and this begins to form who we are. And we start having now a distorted view of ourselves. And we view everything based on this grid, this belief system, and we reject what doesn't agree with it and we keep with what, what does. Or sometimes we even twist what's good into what's bad and keep the bad. Not only do we have a distorted view of ourselves, but we have a distorted view of other people. We might think other people are out to get us. Other people are just waiting to reject us. They're waiting to hurt us. 
Or we might look at other people and say, well, if only they would love me, then I'd be okay. And so we elevate others into the position of God. And then we might even have, and we probably have, a distorted view of God. See, everybody has a distorted view of God to some degree. Because if God can fit between your ears, then your God is too small. God is far bigger than you can ever imagine. But for this person, their, their, their idea or their concept of God is probably very tainted. And maybe when they hear God is a father, you know, they think of their father, their own father, and think, well, that's no fun. I don't know what you think of when you hear God's a father. It depends on what kind of a father you've had. And then some get terrified of that. Or maybe they think of God as this deist, someone who started the, 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 the world in motion and has been absent ever since and doesn't really care. Or maybe they see God as someone who's waiting to punish them. That's kind of how I saw God. As someone who is just waiting in a, in a heartbeat to strike me down, it's just the only reason He didn't is because He has a son that liked me. And that Jesus was kind of getting in the way, but if Father ever got close enough to me, I was in trouble. And so that might be your distortion of God. The result of all this is with my will, not understanding that Christ came to live in me, all I've understood is forgiveness. By default, what will I choose? The flesh. Remember, if you don't make a conscious choice, you make a choice nonetheless. And so by not choosing the Spirit, I by default will choose the flesh, and out will come the different symptoms of the flesh. It might be hostility, it might be self-pity, it might be escapism, and so forth. Where have we seen this before? Remember last night when we built that tree? And we had the roots, and then we had the trunk, and we had the fruit. The roots were the messages from the world. And then the, the, the belief system, that was the trunk. And then the fruit was how we coped. So this really is just our tree upside down. And this is how it forms. This is how we live now. And the result will just be conflict and frustration. Because no matter how hard this person tries to change all this, it's never enough. They inevitably fail. Others inevitably hurt them. And all it does is end up reinforcing this system and this belief. There might be other problems, all kinds of health issues, all kinds of stress-related illnesses. The reason being is because they are operating in a way that God never intended the body to operate. God intended for you and I to live from His life out of the Spirit. But this person is living out of their body and soul. They're operating really you know, not at full potential. And so they're wearing out their body faster. They're carrying on uh, their shoulders the anxiety of the, of the world thinking it's up to them to fix problems. And so it's wearing them down. Well, on the other end of that scale is the positively programmed person, the guy who's had few rejections. And this person growing up through their family, their circumstances and other people, everything just turned up roses. Everything was good. Everything they touched just turned to gold. And so the result was these feelings of strength, of being strong, confident, competent, significant, successful, superior, secure, worthy. This is what they began to feel about themselves. Now, is there anything wrong with these feelings? No. But here's the problem. They felt strong in who? Themselves. They felt confident in who? Themselves. And competent and significant and successful and superior in themselves. It was all based on self. It was all based on their flesh. 
their own abilities. It just so happened that their flesh was capable, kind of like Paul's was. Remember Paul said, put no confidence in the flesh. If anyone would, I far more, because this is what his flesh would look like. He could do it. He could pull it off. Seemingly so, at least. And so this person ends up also having a distorted view of themselves. They might look at others and say, I'm God's gift to you. You'd be lost without me. And so they've elevated themselves and devalued other people. And then they also have a distorted view of God. Their favorite verse is, God helps those who help themselves. Anyone know where that verse is? Hezekiah. Hezekiah. I was going to say second opinions, but Hezekiah works too. It's not in there. But this is the mentality. This is their thinking. And again, they're saved. Christ is in them, but not knowing that Christ came to live in them, by default, they're choosing to live out of the flesh and the result's much the same. Conflict and frustration. Because it never satisfies. Solomon is a great example of this. He had everything. And then he went on an experiment in Ecclesiastes to discover if he could find happiness. And what did he find? I denied myself nothing. And at the end of it, I wanted to kill myself. It was like vanity of vanities, trying to capture and chase after the wind. It just was not working. They're going to also experience the flesh, and it may look the same, it may look different. It doesn't really matter the symptoms. They too will have stress-related illnesses because they're also operating in a way that God never intended. Now we look at this and we say, well, I know what we do. The, we just need to begin to change you know, some of the behavior here. And we go to our, you know, get a self-help book and, and we pray, Lord, help me change my flesh. Help me to stop living this way. And really what we often are praying is, Lord, help change the circumstances because my flesh can't handle it. But look what Galatians 5.17 says. It says, For the flesh sets a desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. If the flesh and Spirit are in opposition to one another, what's happening between them? There's a war going on. And God is not interested in helping your flesh. God is not interested in strengthening your flesh. Meaning God is probably not interested in making your circumstances lighter so your flesh could handle it better. There's a teaching out there that says God will never give you more than you can handle. Anyone want to know where that verse is? It's right after the other one in Hezekiah. It's not there. Now God will never tempt you beyond what you can handle without providing a way of escape, it says in Corinthians. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, we read that Paul was sent to Asia and faced a burden that was more than he could handle. More than he could bear. It was so bad, he despaired of life, he says. And then in verse 9, he says, But these things happened that I might not, might not trust in myself, but trust in the one who raises the dead. And so God may use all things in your life to begin to cause your flesh to break down, to show you the insufficiency and bankruptcy of that flesh, that you would begin to trust in who? Christ and not yourself. And that's at the bottom of that page there. God loves both His positively and negatively programmed children enough to do whatever it takes to reveal the futility or the bankruptcy or the emptiness of the flesh 
so that we'll be ready to exchange the self-life for the Christ life. See, what God is after above all things is you. He wants your heart. And He'll do whatever it takes to get there. He wants your heart more than He wants you to be happy. He wants your heart more than He wants you to be prosperous and successful. He wants your heart more than He wants you to be healthy. And He'll do whatever it takes for you to give your heart to Him because He's jealous for you. He desires to know you and for you to know Him. And so we know that in all things God works for the good. It says in Romans 8, 28 and 29, for those who love Him who have been called according to His purpose, for those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of His Son that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. Let's boil down the verse to a simple concept. We know that in all things God works for the good. It doesn't say all good things. It says all things. Good, bad, easy, difficult. He's going to use them all so that you and I, here's the purpose, would be conformed to the image of His Son. Remember the purpose of man in the garden? The man was to be the very expression of God on earth so that if anyone wanted to know what God was like, they just need to look to man. Well, God's just restoring that purpose. And He's doing that right now, one day at a time in you and I. Hoping that when the world sees us, who do they see? They see Jesus. And so what we have here on page 21 of your notes then is what we've called the exchange life. And it's gone by many names. It's called you know the normal Christian life, the abiding life, the abundant life, the Christ life. I really don't care what you call it because the name's not important. It's the life that's important. And now when all things happen, instead of relying upon my flesh, I choose to depend upon Jesus. I choose to rely upon Him. The result being, my mind becomes renewed to truth. I replace the stinking thinking with proper thinking. My emotions begin to heal. So instead of being stuck at a seven, they come down to a six, to a five to a four. And I can begin to now operate on the full scale of emotions rather than on the small scale. Or maybe my feeler just begins to move and I begin to notice the feelings I have. And Christ living His life through us, that's victorious living. It's much more than living a moral life. It's much more than living a good-looking life. It's living a supernatural life. It's living and experiencing the Jesus Christ, His life through us. That's what we're after. That's what we're going after. Some verses that speak to this. In Romans 15, 18, Paul says, I'll presume to speak of nothing except for what Christ has accomplished through me. It's not what I did for God I want to talk to you about. Because what I was doing for God ended up getting people killed. Instead, I want to talk about what Christ has done through me. He is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. Not according to me, but according to His power. I labor, I strive, He says. So there's still work, but according to His power, which works mightily within me. And then finally, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Amen. This message was recorded by Crossways to Life. It is the desire of Crossways to Life to know Jesus deeper and disciple Christians to experience life in Him through the message of the cross. For more information about our ministry, upcoming courses and events, or how to contact us, 
please visit our website at www.crosswaystolife.org.